Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the impacts of climate disruption are not theoretical, they are happening. Those already worst off are facing the worst of it, and those who profit from it continue to profit. There are finer points, but that's reality. And it's fair to measure journalism, not by its cleverness or demonstrated balance between the voices of power players, because when it comes to climate change, power players are the problem, but by the justice they do to that reality. As national leaders meet at COP26 in Glasgow to discuss ways to confront the already unfolding disaster, the Washington Post is suggesting U.S. readers celebrate What's this? The Transportation Department's Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration's decision to finalize a rule extending federal pipeline safety standards to more than 400,000 miles of currently unregulated onshore gathering lines. You can acknowledge that certain steps are good, without thereby suggesting that they are within shouting distance of enough when it comes to climate change. We'll talk about comparing what's happening to what needs to happen with environmental scientist and advocate and longtime climate conference participant and observer, Michael K. Dorsey. Also on the show, in the wake of horrifying front-page photos from September, the Biden administration says that the U.S. Border Patrol will no longer use horses to round up Haitian asylum seekers. They are flushing out of makeshift shelters to send back over the border into Mexico without the opportunity to present their case about the dangers they've spent, in many cases, years trying to escape. That may cut down on horrifying front-page photos, which is why it's all the more important to ask what's actually changing with regard to U.S. policy toward Haitian refugees. We'll talk about that with Nikesa Opoti, Communications Director at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. With the release of the latest dire report from the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the Washington Post published a strongly worded editorial with the headline, Climate Doubters Lose One of Their Last Remaining Arguments. The board argued that those who say we shouldn't force economic disruption because warming might not be as bad as some fear have now lost one of their last arguments. The IPCC report demonstrates that experts are more certain than ever that dire consequences are coming, the board says, which rules out the benign warming scenarios doubters insisted were still possible. So, ask Julie Holler for FAIR.org, why does the Post continue to publish columns that promote that debunked denialist argument? The day after the editorial, longtime Post columnist George Will threw doubt on the IPCC report with a piece headed, With a Closer Look, Certainty About the Existential Climate Threat Melts Away. 
will relied on arguments from the latest darling of climate deniers, Steve Coonan, a former BP chief scientist and undersecretary for science in Obama's Energy Department. Coonan featured in another recent denialist post column, a guest essay from former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels. Coonan isn't a denier, Daniels explained, but he, quote, uses government and academic reports' own data to challenge the scientific consensus about rising sea levels, droughts, extreme weather, now repeated endlessly and uncritically, close quote. In other words, now that denying climate change has lost any shred of credibility, its proponents have largely abandoned it in favor of a new denialism, which says that climate change may be happening, but it's no big deal. The policy conclusion, conveniently, is the same. We don't need to make any drastic changes, like curbing fossil fuels. It's one thing to publish contrarians in your paper. It's another to publish misinformation. It's well past time for the post-opinion section to stop offering a platform to climate denialism in any form, which is why we ask folks to ask Washington Post editorial page editor Fred Hyatt why, if experts are more certain than ever that dire consequences are coming, his section continues to feature arguments for inaction. He's Fred.Hyatt at WashPost.com. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the National Media Watch Group Fair. A last chance to avert climate disaster? Reads a New York Times headline. Hundreds of heads of state have gathered in Scotland for the COP26 summit, but skepticism abounds that yet more talks can spur action. Well, of course, many people never believed that talking alone would avert climate disaster or that promises or pledges had meaning by themselves. They just aren't the kinds of people who have shaped media coverage of climate disruption or efforts to address it, or for that matter, the kind of people who can even get indoors at the conferences themselves. Our next guest has been filling us in on what happens inside and outside of these climate conferences for over a decade now. Michael K. Dorsey works on issues of global energy, environment, finance, and sustainability. He joins us now by phone from Detroit. Welcome back to Counterspin, Michael Dorsey. Janine, thank you so much for having me. It's truly my pleasure. Well, just to get started, media today are are heralding curbs on methane, plans to stop deforestation. I assume that that isn't nothing, but are our expectations set appropriately for these kinds of conferences and for their impact? You know, unfortunately, where we stand now in the context of the multilateral negotiations around climate and attempts to get us out ahead of the unfolding climate catastrophe is we're basically several days late and many, many dollars short. Mm -hmm. We need roughly $100 trillion to really seriously begin to tackle this now catastrophe that's playing out across and around the world. We need really more robust commitments than the current Biden administration's desire to reduce emissions by 50 percent by the next decade, 2030. We need really something like 50 or even 100 percent more reductions of carbon pollution in the atmosphere to seriously check this unfolding catastrophe. And we need that money, that $100 trillion, much, much sooner than by mid-century 2050. So really, The world's governments have taken too long. They have not come to the table with 
sufficient seriousness, sufficient leadership. They haven't delivered leadership at the scale and state which we need it. They really aren't fit for purpose, unfortunately. Well, in contrast to what you're saying we need, what we're getting is still being sort of celebrated. And in particular, you always get the sense from news media of the U.S. as a leader. You know, the New York Times had Biden will leave Glasgow with progress on climate change, but the more important goals remain elusive, as though, you know, that's what he was there to do. And then the Washington Post, talking about curbing methane, says that, quote, the EPA announcement reflects the Biden administration's strategy to achieve near-term reductions in greenhouse gas emissions while convincing other nations that America can deliver on its ambitious climate goals, close quote. Now, this, mind you, is an announcement of proposed rules from EPA that could establish standards for old wells. And this is being sort of celebrated as the U.S. leading the world, and what we really need to do is convince other countries to do better? Well, you know, Jeanine, look, it's really important, uh, and it is absolutely true, that the Biden administration's orientation is in the right direction. It's absolutely a sea change improvement over the, the hucksterism and shenanigans of the previous administration that literally put not just the United States in a pothole, but really attempted to put the whole planet in a pothole uh, for humanity and risk ecosystems and social well-being around the earth and certainly in the United States. The Biden administration is committed to increase its funding to the Green Climate Fund, which is the mechanism to support particularly the emerging market economies, the developing world, as it were. They want to increase that by about 12 percent, roughly calling on Congress to put an extra $1.2 billion into that. But remember I told you that we need roughly $100 trillion. So while $1.2 billion is certainly a lot of money, it's not 10 times short, 100 times short. It's more like 1,000 times short. So really the scale of which that we need the response, not just from the United States, but from the EU, uh, even from surging economies like India and China and other certainly wealthy economies, Canadians, the Australians, you know, they call themselves the Cannes group. Really, we need orders of magnitude, not just one or two, but really more like two or three orders of magnitude, more money, more seriousness, more leadership that's fit for purpose and worthy of, of our attention. The failure to deliver it is going to basically put more and more lives at risk, is going to cause a loss of life, and it's especially going to damn those on the margins of society. The poor black and brown folks, certainly in the United States, that are on the front line and fence line of polluting industry, particularly fossil fuel pollution, but also those in the global south, as it were, the developing world, in Africa, in Asia, across Latin America, they're going to pay with their lives, and they already are. Yeah. I wonder then what you make of another story I saw today that had Bill Gates in an interview saying to limit warming to below 2, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels as the Paris Agreement calls for. He says, eh, not going to happen. Quote, I doubt that we'll be able to achieve that, close quote. (laughs) I think Mr. Gates is correct, actually. We're on a course now where because of literally a generation and a half of utter silliness, foolishness from leadership, from elected officials, corruption, sociopathy, really, from the fossil fuel industry, repeated offenses, repeated pollution incidents, not just with CO2 pollution, but with a whole host of other pollution, poisoning, killing, destroying communities, certainly on the fence line of those operations, but really even around the world. That generation half of sociopathy, really, has really put the planet on a course that we're going to see not just 
rising temperatures, we're going to see sea level rise on the minimum of three to six feet, a meter or two meters. Right now in New York City, cities like Miami, they're planning, they've got city plans now to deal with three to six feet of sea level rise. That will end what we know as downtown Manhattan. It will be gone. So that's the course we're on, and it's really because of the lackluster leadership. So we've got to now think about really massively upping up our game to get out ahead of what we can get out ahead of, and also to put resources to protect those communities that are going to be on the brunt end of this unfolding crisis. Yeah, I guess I'd just like him to sound a little angrier about it, you know. Um, When we spoke in 2011, after Durban, South Africa, you said visionary leadership is at the community level. In 2013, after Warsaw, you said civil society doesn't just protest, they do and deliver. I wonder if you can address that idea about where leadership actually is happening and uh, who are some voices that maybe we would benefit from hearing more from. I stand by that comment from over a decade ago. I appreciate you pulling that. And I stand by it today, and I'll stand by it when, I, when they lay me down low. The reality is, is that the aggressive posturing, which is certainly, again, in the right direction that we see from the Biden administration and we see from other governments around the world, is a direct result of pressure from the people. It's a direct result of that street heat being put to those in those C-suites. So it's going to be people that are going to carry the day on this. Unfortunately, some will pay with their lives, but it's those individuals, citizens, social movements, civil society that are going to push leaders, the representatives who work for them in the first place. Many of those leaders don't recognize or remember that they're actually representing civil society and citizens, as it were. But it's going to be citizens and individuals that are going to keep the pressure on those leaders to be more ambitious and to go and do much more than they're doing now. And that's always going to be the case, I think. Well, I guess I would just end back at that New York Times headline, a last chance to avert climate disaster. Well, I think you're saying Glasgow is not the last chance, that there's a whole lot of other stuff that needs to happen. And we do need more leadership, but maybe putting all our eyes on these conferences is not the right place to look for the energy we need for the change. We can't be angry with what we see in the multilateral process. We definitely don't want to confuse the concern and the extent of the crisis and mix that up with being angry. We've got to be strategic. I think there's a great number of individuals and institutions in civil society, certainly in the non-governmental organization space, but also in the, in the private sector. Those that are building out photovoltaics and solar and wind and putting that in the ground and doing that at a hurried, hastily pace to really be fit for purpose and fit for scale to tackle this problem. So there is a tremendous amount of hope, but it may not necessarily come out of these meetings, so to speak, but it's going to come from people doing that, that hard work, putting in that sweat, equity, and getting out ahead of this problem. We've been speaking with Michael K. Dorsey. Michael Dorsey, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Truly, truly my pleasure. People around the world were appalled to see pictures of U.S. Border Patrol officers on horseback wielding reins like whips in the effort to corral and capture Haitian refugees along the Rio Grande. So alarming was the imagery that outlets like the New York Times took pains to clarify that there was no evidence that Border Patrol had actually whipped anyone. 
That rather encapsulates corporate media coverage of Haitian asylum seekers and the treatment they receive, so inhumane that not one but two officials have resigned over it. It's a sort of liberal tut-tutting that not only fails to challenge U.S. policy, but that tacitly sanctions its harms and their racist rationales with inattention. Advocates, meanwhile, call for immigration policy that is rooted in human rights and dignity. Nikesa Opoti is communications director at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. She joins us now by phone from Los Angeles. Welcome to Counterspin, Nikesa Opoti. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's leap right in to why so many Haitians are being expelled from the U.S. without an opportunity to present a case for asylum and talk about Title 42, this public health services law, because Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas has stated of the expulsions of Haitians, quote, we are doing this out of a public health need. It is not an immigration policy. It is not an immigration policy that we would embrace, close quote. That's a pretty confusing statement. Does that make sense to you? No, it does not. And in fact, we'd argue that Title 42, because of its nature of standing people back, the images that people saw of Haitians, and in fact, it wasn't just Haitians, Haitians and other black asylum seekers, under a bridge in Texas, the camps that you see outside at the border between Mexico and the U.S., those are the unsafe conditions. Processing people and allowing them to come into the country is the best public health policy. You wonder how forcing people to live under bridges would be more sanitary. And then also right. Haitians, many of whom are not coming from Haiti, right now, but have been traveling through South and Central America for years, they aren't any more likely to have COVID-19 than any other people who cross the border, right? Or than any other refugees like, say, Afghans who are being rightfully accepted right now. So it seems like an exception. Right. And, you know, I'm glad you bring that up because think about it. The U.S. at the moment doesn't have ways in which it's screens people who are coming in from other parts of the country, whether it's tourists or whoever else is traveling, business people. So not only is this measure anti-Black, it is also very, very classist. Title 42 disproportionately impacts Black uh, asylum seekers, but it also impacts other asylum seekers. So these are the most vulnerable of any population of people who are seeking, for whatever reason, migrating to the U.S because they're desperate, because no one leaves their home and crosses through multiple countries and the jungle for fun, right? Mm -hmm. It is very clear that these people are in crisis, and these are the very same people that the U.S. government has decided to turn away and expose them to even further harm and violence. There is a report that Bargy did at the beginning of the year called There is a Target on Us, And it looks at the conditions of black migrants, mostly asylum seekers, but black migrants in general, and violence that they experience at the border on their way into the U.S. and in Mexico. The incarceration rates, the rape of women and children, and the robberies, the exposure to the elements. And so it is very, very clear 
that the anti-blackness of the U.S. is very well known for historically. We have known the treatment of black people in this country is extending to Haitians and other black asylum seekers and migrants. Well, maybe it's quaint to contrast politicians' actions with their promises, but Joe Biden did explicitly say that he would reverse Trump policy on Title 42, didn't he, when he was running for office? He did. He did. And in fact, not just his promise, but there is a video of Vice President Kamala Harris criticizing the Trump administration for using Title 42 and turning people around. She specifically talks about how it's inhumane, and yet here she is a part of an administration that is doing the very same thing. And in fact, when a federal judge said that Title 42 should not be carried out, the Biden administration appealed that decision. So they're not just kind of not paying attention to it. They actually are doubling down in a way on it. They are. They are. In your introduction, you talk about liberal politics. I think this is one of the dangers of liberals is because we've spent so much time attacking or critiquing conservative governments and Trump, for example, or Bush before him. And then when it comes to a Democrat and a liberal, there is very little critique and pushback. And yet, Democrats continue to hold the status quo. There are some ways in which they do things a little bit better, obviously, than conservatives. But they will uphold white supremacy. They will uphold the nation state and the idea that Hillary Clinton famously said when she was Secretary of State, did tell migrants who were fleeing not to come to the U.S. She blamed mothers for the children migrant crisis that we were having at the time. Mm -hmm. And the cruelty of someone like that, who is apparently a feminist, uh, apparently better than a conservative, is sort of the same politics that is continuing with the Biden administration, that they're migration policies are somehow more benevolent than that of a conservative, and yet the impact is the same. And particularly for black folks, we see that we doubly suffer under any of these policies. In the American Prospect, Ella Fanger had a good report outlining some of that disparate treatment, including that when they can get a hearing, Black immigrants are believed less often when they claim credible fear of returning to their country, when they claim threats to life or freedom. And she pointed out that immigration judges are usually white and have served as prosecutors or ICE officials. So what Baji's work and that of others is saying, we don't just have bad immigration policy. There are particular special problems that confront black immigrants in particular, it sounds like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Black Alliance for Just Immigration, along with other racial justice and civil rights organizations, you've sent public letters and made statements to the White House and to Homeland Security that say their stated commitment to racial equity has to extend to the treatment of immigrants. And I just wonder, what are some of the changes to policy that you're calling for that you would like to see? Yeah, thank you for that question. So there is a whole list of things. Uh, Top of the list is for the folks who are at the border, granting them humanitarian parole. Humanitarian parole allows them to come into the U.S. 
find shelter, housing, and there are organizations and family members that can accommodate that and allows them a chance to apply for asylum. As you know, there's a backlog in all sorts of things, migration-related. That's the top of the ask that we have. Other things include creating a past citizenship for the you know, millions of undocumented folks. Mm-hmm. And that also is an asset we have of the administration. And there are folks who have been unjustly deported, not that any deportation is just, but there is also a demand that for those folks that they should be allowed to return to the U.S. and be reunited with their families. The biggest thing that we have that Baji works at the intersection of uh, race and immigration is the impact of the criminal justice system on black migrants. And that we know that, for example, 76% of black migrants who are in detention have some form of criminal record. We also know that the criminal justice system is not just. And so we know of people who have been in prison, and then as soon as they get out of prison, they're turned over to ICE, and then they're detained, oftentimes indefinitely, oftentimes for many, many years. And then finally, well, there's more, but another one that I'd like to highlight is as the country grapples with criminal justice reform, that black migrants must be included in that conversation just because of what I listed as some of the things that we face. Absolutely. Well, finally, if you have any thoughts on this, I know that you are also a journalist. I just wonder if there's anything that you would like to see more of or less of in media coverage of the struggle of Haitians seeking asylum? I'm really glad you asked this question because narrative does impact policy and it impacts how people see themselves in the world. One of the biggest catastrophes, for example, for the DACA program is that DACA was billed as obviously an immigration reprieve that was for any undocumented immigrant that fit into into the specific criteria. What happened is because it was specifically talked about as Latinx reprieve, a lot of black immigrants did not know that they qualified for it. Mm. And so this is part of the danger of erasing black migrants out of public discourse. And the disappointing thing, just like with all black people in this country, is that we are often left out of almost every conversation, and media coverage erases black migrants. So now we know that, for example, this recent crisis with Haitians, everyone covered it, and then everyone has now disappeared. Mm-hmm. There's other issues that need to be talked about. There has been very little press about some of the things that I've uplifted in this call, and yet this data exists. These stories exist, these anecdotes exist, the research exists. It's not just Baji that has done this research. And yet, over and over again, the media willfully ignores these stories. We've been speaking with Nikesa Opoti of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. You can find their work online at bajibaji.org. Thank you so much, Nikesa Opoti, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. 
I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.